You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, a replication crisis. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hi there. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Today we are talking about the unfolding replication crisis in science, with a particular focus on some high-profile results in the field of psychology that haven't exactly stood the test of time. Some view science as simply a list of facts. Gravitational bodies attract, entropy increases, pizza is delicious. Others see science as a nearly infallible process by which objective observations may be winnowed from bias and error. But while it may aspire to objectivity, science is a very human process. Often a new scientific study will be published to great fanfare, promising to shed new light on some aspect of the human experience. It's only later, after all the news articles are published, TED Talks are presented, and book deals are signed, that other scientists will find that they're unable to reproduce the results of the original study. This is why independent replication, where an experiment is conducted again by a separate team of researchers in an attempt to validate its results, is a cornerstone of science. It is meant to provide us with confidence that the data presented in a scientific paper aren't simply the result of a statistical fluke, or that the original researchers didn't just make up some numbers, throw them into Excel, and call it a day. <laughs> they wouldn't just throw it into Excel and call it a day. They've uh, got to load up LaTeX and run it three times to get the paper to... they got to do the bootstrapping program. Oh, God. <laughs> LaTeX is a nightmare. Um, so today we're going to go through a few specific high-profile cases of uh, scientific results in psychology that have been overturned upon repeated failures of replication. A recent example that people might have read about of research that was overturned by replication is power posing. Uh, do you know what power posing is? Yeah, mm -hmm. everybody's uh, read about this. So uh, for our listeners, it's uh, the idea that a subject can affect beneficial behavioral changes simply by altering their posture. Uh, the original findings, published in 2010 and further popularized by a TED Talk delivered by one of the researchers, claimed that standing in high power poses, uh, hands on hip, chest out, etc., resulted in changes in hormone levels that altered subjects' behavior. But other researchers have not been able to reproduce the paper's findings, with 11 failed replications published last year alone. Wow. That's a nice. lot. People really wanted to know if power posing works. I mean, well, it's such a cool idea. Yeah. I mean, the theory of, like, yes, standing in something that you would assume would be a power position might make you think differently. But the idea, like, confident. the hormone changes, then, like, that kind of level is a little bit iffy yeah. to me. I'm not sure that better posture is really going to change that. Well, I think part of the reason that it seems plausible is because we're all familiar with the facial feedback hypothesis. You remember this hypothesis? is the idea that uh, if you smile, you will feel happier. 
the study in question actually had people, I think, um, uh, hold a pencil in their teeth or a spoon in their teeth or something that, uh, that forced their face into more of a smile and they reported feeling happier than when they had to do other things that made their face not smile-shaped. And that, that also has failed replication, so... <laughs> like, the, the power poses one always sounded kind of plausible to me, but the mm. if you smile, you will feel happy didn't. So I'm not really? sure that that holds true for me. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I definitely felt like the, if you smile, you'll feel happier. Not only did that seem plausible to me, but it also felt like it worked sometimes. Mm-hmm. But mm. I but probably felt like it worked because I was feeling incredibly depressed. And I, and I started concentrating on attempting to improve my mood. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, you were doing something different. You were breaking yeah. the yeah. negative thought pattern. So exactly. that's probably why it was more positive. So while some outsiders might view uh, this story of power posing in a negative light, I actually consider it a success, uh, notwithstanding the fact that one of the three researchers, the one that presented the TED Talk, refuses to accept the new data. Uh, occasionally, occasionally researchers will make a mistake, but others are there to catch it. This is how we make progress in science. All conclusions are provisional. But the situation is actually a little less sunny than that. Replications, it turns out, are relatively rare. Uh, talking about the field of psychology, anyone want to guess how rare? I know I've seen the statistics, so I feel like I'm cheating, but I don't... Uh, 6% are actually replicated? 6% of public... Uh, 6% of papers are replicated? 6% of papers, somebody attempts to replicate them. Yeah, I would go with something like that, because 6% of what's published is quite a lot more. So I have numbers here for uh, the number of papers that are actually actually published and uh, for the number that are replications. Okay. So uh, what do you think that number is? Number of published papers in psychology that are replications. Uh, one out of a thousand. Oh boy. That's dire. <laughs> yeah, he asked for a percentage, so it's got to be from one to a hundred, I would assume. <laughs> well, it could be zero. Probably, Point probably one more. is a percentage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like nobody wants to publish that stuff, so that's going to also... Bring it down 1%. 1% is correct. Uh, An analysis of papers published in the top 100 psychological journals between 1900 and 2012 found that only about 1% of published psychology papers are attempts at replication. This means that for the vast majority of scientific studies, both in psychology and in other disciplines where the numbers are similar, no attempt at replication is ever published. For most of them. Nobody even tries. Uh, And when replications do happen, the results are often a lot less uh, impressive than those in the original papers. I would actually say that maybe your assertion that nobody even tries is maybe not correct. Yeah, so that's that's the thing. I'm going to discuss that in a little bit, but we do we do not know how much the file drawer effect is coming into play, Mm -hmm. but we also do know that researchers are they're scared away from attempting replications because they're so hard to publish. Right. Uh, But yeah, you're right. I don't have hard numbers on that. Psychology Today, that is the field uh, today, not the (laughs) bi-monthly magazine. Uh, For the last few years, psychology has found itself in the midst of a replication crisis, with many of its most groundbreaking, well-cited studies failing to hold up to replication. 
In 2015, as part of the Reproducibility Project, the nonprofit Center for Open Science published a report on 100 studies taken from three highly ranked psychological journals, all originally published in 2008. It found that while 97% of the original studies had statistically significant results, a much smaller percentage of replications reached statistical significance. Anyone want to guess at uh, what percentage uh, survived replication? 30. Less than 10. 3. Ashlyn is the closest. It's uh, uh, 36%. So only 36% of the replications... Uh, reached statistical significance, and their effect size was also about half the effect size found in the original papers. A replication crisis of this magnitude, in which barely a third of studies seem to be trustworthy, can reasonably shake our confidence in the process of science, leading the British newspaper The Independent to dismiss, understandably, the majority of published psychological research as mere psychobabble. So we should just throw out the whole field of psychology. Um, no. Why don't we return to that question at the uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the show? We'll, we'll, we'll see how dire things actually look. So notable results whose reproducibility has been called into question include two famous experiments on authority by Milgram of Yale and Zimbardo of Stanford, which Lauren and I will talk about in more detail in a little bit. The backfire effect, which Ashlyn is going to be discussing. The Marshmallow Experiment, which Laura will be telling us about in just a moment, and several other psychological theories that we just didn't have time to cram into this episode, including stereotype threat, ego depletion, social priming, and the facial feedback hypothesis that I mentioned earlier. Of course, just because a study hasn't been replicated, that doesn't mean necessarily that it isn't true. There are a host of reasons, uh, as Ashlyn alluded to earlier, that researchers tend to favor original research over replications. Replications are a lot harder to publish, and they also lack the prestige of groundbreaking work. Publication bias, where negative findings are simply not published, can also significantly distort our view of the state of the evidence, as can the preference for publishing new or surprising findings, rather than findings that are seen as more mundane or obvious. Imagine that we have two studies. One that reaches uh, an expected conclusion, we'll call this the Dog Bites Man study, uh, and one that uh, turns established wisdom on its head, the Man Bites Dog study. The Dog Bites Man study is less likely to be published because it's not interesting, it's not news. After all, everyone knows that dogs bite men. By contrast, the Man Bites Dog study is both more likely to be published, because it's interesting, but it's also less likely to be reproducible, because it's less likely to be right, at least from a prior plausibility perspective, right? Perhaps it was a fluke, one of the 1 in 20 studies that incorrectly discards the null hypothesis, if we're looking for a p-value of 0.05, uh, or perhaps because the researchers intentionally tweaked the data. Juicier studies are more likely to be published and are less likely to be reliable. So for studies that are successfully replicated, it's also not clear how confident we can be in these replications. The review that I mentioned earlier found that if at least one author from the original study was involved in the replication, the probability of a successful replication was 92%. <laughs> but if the replication attempt was completely independent, 
This review found that the probability of a successful replication fell to just 65%. Just to be clear, um, you might be confused as to why it's 65 when earlier I talked about um, 36. Uh, that's because this is the uh, survey of papers published in the last 100 years from 100 psychological journals. There's a very wide survey. Rather than the Center for Open Sciences Reproducibility Project, which took um, 100 studies from 2008. So this is the earlier data set. So they found that if the replication attempt was completely independent, its probability of success was only 65%. So you can interpret this disparity in one of two ways, neither of which is particularly flattering. Uh, perhaps the authors of the original study were simply not very good at providing sufficient detail in their papers to allow other scientists to successfully replicate their experiment without their involvement. And this alone would be bad enough, but critics have also identified many research practices that contribute to results that are ultimately unreliable. So what's going on? Well, it's easy to point to outright fraud, as in the case of Diedrich Stoppel, who at last count had 58 papers retracted on account of fabricated data. Whoa. Yeah, he is, uh, right now, I think he is the top of the leaderboard for psychology, uh, but there are a couple of medical researchers who uh, have, have him beat. I think he's r right now number three on the retraction watch leaderboard. <laughs> <laughs> but the main culprit driving the reproducibility crisis seems to be a little bit grayer. So-called questionable research practices, also known as researcher degrees of freedom, allow researchers to exploit flexibility in the way data are collected, analyzed, and reported to manipulate the study to arrive at a more desirable result. Such practices include choosing how much data to collect and publish. So if you're conducting a study and you peek at the data as you're collecting it, uh, let's say you notice that halfway through the study, you're, you've got a result that's just barely statistically significant. Now, you might worry, oh, maybe if I finish the study, I'm going to drop just below statistical significance. My p-value is going to rise a little bit. So you might opt to stop the study early just in case, you know, because you're already statistically significant, so you might as well stop early while you're ahead. Just in just in case, another way you can uh, you can tweak how much data you're collecting is if you're collecting dozens of measurements, and you notice a pattern in one or two, you might then publish those as though the study was just looking at those measurements. Mm -hmm. um, in which case, your p-value, your statistics need to be adjusted to account for that, and often they aren't. Uh, another related uh, thing that happens is people will. <laughs> will round their values. They'll round their mm -hmm. p-value down. My p-value is 0.054. We're going to call that a 0 0.05. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another thing that researchers will do is take uh, exploratory research and then uh, write a hypothesis to match it. Uh, so they, they'll frame an exploratory analysis as uh, what's called a confirmatory analysis. And uh, that's cheating uh, if our listeners are familiar with the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. So that's the idea that you, you, ha you have uh, uh, a guy firing a shotgun at uh, the side of a barn and then walking up and painting a target around the, where the shot hit the barn. So the idea is if you're just researching something without a hypothesis, you are much more likely to find something than you are to find a specific thing. So when you're doing your statistical analysis, you need to account for what you were actually looking for. And if you were just looking for something, <laughs> it's a lot easier to find something. 
and finally, we have manipulation of outliers. Um, sometimes it makes sense to remove outliers in your data, uh, but the decision needs to be made before statistical analysis is done because you can otherwise tweak the data by just calling certain data points outliers, and then suddenly you're arriving at the result that you expected. A 2009 systematic review published in PLOS One found that across disciplines, 34% of scientists admitted to questionable research practices, and 2% admitted to outright falsifying their data. When asked about their fellow scientists, 14 said that they knew of others who had falsified their research, and 72% knew of colleagues who engaged in questionable practices. The paper points out that given the gravity of the ethical questions involved in the survey, the actual numbers are likely to be much higher, and medical researchers were apparently particularly bad, <laughs> which is troubling. So, with all of that preamble out of the way, now that we know what this replication crisis is, let's talk about a few specific studies in detail, shall we? I think that might have been our longest intro ever. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I don't think we can call that an intro. <laughs> no. That was You're now a... listening to part B of the podcast. <laughs> that was a statistical review. <laughs> it was very good. Don't get me yes. wrong. Yes. Uh, it was twice as long as my segment, so... <laughs> We're going to start off with Laura, who's going to tell us all about the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. The marshmallow test is something that, honestly, I'm not sure if I remember it from my intro psychology course or my first year uh, university psychology course, but I've definitely heard of it many times through there. This is the kind of thing, too, that especially as I've been a parent, it's something that's sort of weighed on my mind um, <laughs> as I try to raise a, a perfect upstanding citizen. <laughs> um, so for anybody who's not familiar with the marshmallow test, this is a very famous study where researchers gave kids the option to either have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later if they waited for it. And so the theory behind this or the hypothesis was that um, the kids that could wait longer did better in life because they had more self-control, they had more coping mechanisms and such, and so they did better in life. That's kind of what most people know about the marshmallow experiment. So then that has gone on into popular culture saying, you know, well, you know, you want your kid to be able to delay gratification, and and that's a really important skill. It proves that they they will be good and successful and smart and all those things down the road. And so if your kid's not able to do that, you start worrying, I'm a terrible parent, <laughs> things like that. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> no. <laughs> so let's describe this, the original marshmallow test a little bit, because the, the replication came out just in May of this year, actually. So this is a fresh one. Wow. Um, so the original paper was published uh, by Michel and Shoda in 1990. It was conducted at Stanford, like Jem had said. The experiment itself, where the marshmallow part of the test was actually done in the uh, between 1968 and 1974 in Stanford. So at that time, they tested about approximately 600, a little bit more than 600 kids, and they did this test with them. And it wasn't, while well, we call it the marshmallow test, it wasn't just marshmallows. They offered them a variety of different rewards that were age-appropriate. All the kids were about four years old at this time. But whatever reward they chose, it was something that the kids were interested in. And they presented it to them. They would um, the researchers would have the, take the kids into like a private little room. So it was the researcher and the kid play with them for a little bit and then say, I have to leave now. 
I have these rewards here. You can have two of them if you wait till I get back. But if you can't wait, but if you can't wait, you ring this bell and I'll come back and then you can just have one of them. So whatever it was, that was the, that's how they did this experiment. Oh, okay. I thought they just left the kid with the one marshmallow and waited to see if they ate it. So this is, so they did actually, uh, a number of different scenarios here because they did do that. They actually broke the kids into four different experimental conditions. So they had the the one that we were all thinking of where they leave the kid alone with the marshmallow on the table, just sort of staring at it. And they just leave the kid alone, see what happens. Then they would do that same thing with the visible treat, but they would also provide suggestions to the kid for distractions like Think of something fun you could do. Think of what you'll do after this. What's your favorite toy? So giving them things to do in that time. Then they would do both of those scenarios, but without the treat being visible. So they had the four different scenarios there. (laughs) Because they they wanted to see what would happen. And this was actually part of a much larger collection of studies that they were doing over the development of self-control with kids. So again, this is... This is the study that made this re- these researchers' names, like, mm-hmm. made them famous. But it's just part of a huge swath of studies of this type of thing. Are there attempts to replicate the other parts? Of these I didn't studies? look into that. Um, perhaps, but this is the most famous one. Yeah. So this is the one that people are going to jump on. So that's what they did. And in, in this study, they found that as they did these four different experimental conditions, they really honed in on the visible treat with no distraction or no strategy given to the kids. They just, they were seeing, okay, well, what happens to the kids? Because if the kids come up with a distraction strategy, that's something innate in them versus if they don't. So they wanted to see if the ones that come up with something would wait, get that delayed gratification or not, and what would happen there. So that was the short-term thing. Then more than 10 years later in the, in the late eighties, um, they, attempted to follow up with these kids. So they tried to find as many as they could, their parents, and they sent them these questionnaires, um, behavior-based questionnaires. And then um, they also found their SAT scores and things like that to figure out, well, what happened to these kids? Because we know how they performed. Did they delay gratification or not? What happened to them now that they're teenagers? So You might have noticed that I said that there were more than 600 kids in the study, but when we hear about the marshmallow test now, they're like, oh, there was a small study. There was only 90 kids. This is where it comes in because more than 10 years later, at most, they got 100 and some respondents for out of 600. So that's where that number drops. So for more than three quarters of them, we don't know what happened to them. They're just kind of out there, right? So what they found with this is that in that group of kids that you know, were just left on their own to try to deal with taking the marshmallow or not. The children that waited longer seemed to have more coping skills, and then they seemed to be rated higher in coping skills and have higher SAT scores down the road compared to the kids that did not wait longer. And of course, these are, um, it's their parents filling out uh, rating skills and that, so there's some issues with that. But they hypothesize that then there was something innate about these kids. And so getting them to delay gratification longer, their skills would have helped them be better down the road or be more successful down the road. So that's where we get this idea of this marshmallow test um, working for them. 
But even the even at the time in 1990, the study uh, the study's authors did note that it was a small sample size. The kids were four years old at the time when they did the study, and they noted that it was a really small window for this because they were researching other kids too. They found that when they did similar types of marshmallow tests for six year olds, they didn't see them acting the same way. So there was something specific about this preschool age. Did they publish the uh, results with the six-year-olds too? Or did they just pick the one that was interesting and publish that? I don't know if it's published in another study. Like I said, there's a lot and I did not have time to go through all of that. So you could look through their research and find it. But they did note in this famous study that there's something about the four-year-old range that seemed that they captured this. And they also noted too that this was a pretty homogenous population because all of the children attended a preschool center on the Stanford campus. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> So you're not going to see a lot of uh, a lot of people who have dealt with food insecurity. Right. Yeah, so we're getting to that. <laughs> That group was the only group where they noticed a bit of a difference or where they were looking for anything. They noticed that when they offered distraction strategies to the kids or when the reward wasn't visible while they were waiting, there didn't seem to be any correlation at all to um, future success in life. So then that, well, if we give kids distraction strategies, then, you know, that takes that, that evens the playing field or something like that as well. So when I had heard of the marshmallow study, I didn't always hear of these these things that the authors did, in fact, put in in the original paper there. So there were some inklings that, like, yes, this is not the most definitive thing, but of course it's become famous. So, like I said, this was recently repeated by Watts et al., um, the study published in 2008, or, sorry, um, 2018. And they noticed, they noted the limitations in the original study, and they wanted to um, replicate it, but also expand on it. So they chose about 900 participants as opposed to the 90 to 100 and some, so 10 times the population. And they specifically chose populations that were not um, university-based populations. So they noted that all of these kids were from that Stanford campus that denotes a certain socioeconomic status and and things like that. So they specifically sought out Um, people that would not necessarily fit that mold or families that would not necessarily fit that mold. So in that case, they call it a conceptual replication as opposed to a, a true replication. And the, but the kids were still about four and a half years old at the time of the intervention. They chose these kids through a study that was already going on that was monitoring them every few years about development and things like that. So then they added in an extra opportunity when they were four years, four and a half to do that same marshmallow test. And they did pretty much the same test with them, except um, in the original study, the researcher would wait 15 minutes before coming back and giving the kid two marshmallows. In this study, they only waited seven minutes and did that. So the biggest difference that they found or that they did when they were looking at the data and they specifically, they made a point of doing this. There are two big differences. One, they made a point of capturing a lot more demographic data than the original study ever did. And they specifically separated groups into kids of mothers who had college degrees versus who did not have university or college degrees. And they did a lot of sub-analyses for those two groups. And that's where some of these new findings come out. 
So right off the bat, um, they found that with that seven minute wait, a lot of the kids were able to wait seven minutes, more than they expected. So they're like, okay, seven minutes was a little too short. So on average, 55% of the kids were able to wait the seven minutes. Those were considered completed the test. However, 68% like in the the families that had a college educated mother, 68% of those kids could wait, whereas in the other families, only 45%. So we're already seeing some differences there. When you look at the demographics, um, the the degreed mothers were um, making more money, they were more white, <laughs> um, they were married more often. Um, they rated higher on um, linguistic scores that are typically used to um, measure things like just general education and intelligence, like the level of language that they're using. Whereas the kids from mothers that did not have degrees were more similar to the general U.S. population. So there was more background diversity. There were um, they were more varied income and much more in the lower income level and such. And they only looked at the mother's education? They did only look at the mother's. And that's just a societal thing. They tend to go with mothers because mothers are still the, tend to be the primary child carers, tend Mm -hmm. to make the decisions around things, tend to be the, um, the ones that do a lot of discipline, like a lot of the talking to kids and creation of the home environment even if fathers are there and involved the mothers are kind of like that staple and especially if you're actively trying to look for groups that are living less stable lives it tends to be a mother and kids as opposed to a father and kids so they're it's a little bit easier to track that way that would be my guess with that yeah I, i believe that there's been some research about a lot of it has to do with the mother's level of education as to how how the families how like the household runs and their um challenges and things like that but i don't quote me on that (laughs) so any case lots of demographic differences as well before even looking before looking at more more data and the kids with uh, mothers with degrees had fewer differences when they looked at the data by degrees and no degrees and they they spent a lot of time analyzing the no degrees the kids from families with no degrees so in the raw data, it did look like similar to the original test, where the kids um, the kids were also categorized as to into groups as to how long they could wait. So was, there was the kids that waited less than twenty seconds, then twenty seconds to two minutes, then two minutes to seven minutes, and then seven minutes was completed. Okay, so that broken into four groups. So when they looked at the raw data. Again, the longer the kids were able to wait, the better their um, their scores on academic tests and and behavior questionnaires and that as when they were older as part of this study. But then they added controls and adjustments for different demographic factors and that. And then they when they did that, they found that a lot of these differences that were significant at the time disappeared. That statistical significance was gone once they added these controls for kids that waited at least 20 seconds there was really no difference. So the difference only really lasted for the kids that waited less than 20 seconds. The kids that waited less than 20 seconds also tended to be from lower income families and and things like that. <laughs> Ashlyn is mining. Uh, Ashlyn is a less than 20 second person, <laughs> apparently. I just really want marshmallows now. We've been talking about them for like 10 minutes and I didn't think to bring marshmallows. <laughs> They did the same analysis with the kids from parents with degrees, and they did notice a lot of the same patterns. But again, once they added similar types of controls, the the differences disappeared there. 
They weren't able to fully determine if the early delayed gratification and later achievement really does differ by socioeconomic status, like just because of the messiness of the data. But there was some interesting findings there that it would be good to continue looking into. But what they did notice is that even when kids were young, like the ones that were able to wait longer, it didn't seem to correlate to any differences in be- in performance at six years or 15 years old down the road. So whatever differences were happening once those controls were added were just gone. So just because your kid can wait for a marshmallow when they're four doesn't mean that at 15, they're not going to be impulsive and reckless. Sorry, everybody. All 15-year-olds are impulsive and exactly, reckless. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> and what they also looked at, too, or expanded upon, where where Michelle and Shoda did not, was that Michelle and Shoda kind of thought that there was something intrinsic about these kids, or there was a rearing practice or something like that, that helped them wait a little bit longer. So it was a personality trait. And they didn't really take into account a lot the the other factors of life that might be affecting them that have nothing to do, that the kids can't have any mm-hmm. impact on when they're four or something like that. So the new study thought that perhaps it had more to do with impulse control and general cognitive ability and not some kind of innate ability to generate distractions or coping mechanisms or something like that. Like it's all sort of part of the same thing, but it's more so a development thing. And if you're looking at it uh, from an advantage versus disadvantage, privilege versus less privileged perspective, that makes sense because we know that kids that grow up in a really, really rich um, supportive environment are likely to be more advanced and be able to have more control over their impulses and things like that. Whereas if you don't have that same support, they would probably rate more poorly. And they also point out that it's no, we don't want to just look at things to make kids wait a little bit longer because it's not about just the waiting. It's about the general development overall. So we want to make sure that as we take this and put it into usable strategies, that we're looking at things that actually are going to carry over into the future because just being able to wait doesn't make kids more successful. As long as they were able to, to wait more than 20 seconds they did just as well as the kids that waited seven minutes. So it didn't really, it all came out in the wash for them. I'm curious whether they understood that they would get more if they waited. Well, and this is, and that's something that's interesting. And this is where it ties into that socioeconomic status. It comes down to that scarcity idea. If you've grown up with scarcity or uncertainty, tomorrow might not come or that second marshmallow might not come. The first marshmallow might not come. So if it is there for you, you will take that marshmallow Mm -hmm. because why would you, if you've been trained to know that a future thing, there's a really good chance it's not going to show up. I'm not going to take that bet. I'm going to take what's the sure thing right now. Somebody else might just come back and take your marshmallow. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yes, do they understand that it really will come? But then it's like, do they believe that it will come? You know, I understand that you're telling me it'll come. I understand them not believing that it will come. I'm just... Explaining mm-hmm. anything to a four-year-old is hard. <laughs> and, and, but again, this comes yeah. back to that cognitive development yeah. thing, right? A kid who has been exposed to more ideas, has that kind of support, maybe early childhood education or something like that. Maybe they would cognitively understand that, yes, there will be more marshmallows. I understand what you are going to do here. Whereas a kid mm-hmm. who is less advanced, hasn't had all of those types of interventions, like you said, may not actually get that okay, you're going to come back in seven minutes and give me another marshmallow. It definitely seems plausible to me that some kids who have been subject to repeated broken promises uh, 
Speaking as somebody who who grew up with uh, a few Christmases with IOUs under the Christmas tree, um, like that that makes you a lot more risk averse, and you mm-hmm. you know I I can definitely see how somebody would uh, would you know grab that marshmallow while it's there. It makes you risk averse, and it also makes you more likely to splurge when you have the opportunity. Oh yes. So <laughs> which. I know about you. <laughs> <laughs> Up top. <laughs> um, but, and then that's a well-known phenomenon for, for people who experience scarcity, so. Might as well spend the money while we have it. Exactly. There's an excellent John Cheese article about that from back when Cracked had a uh, modicum of respect. <laughs> and writing staff. <laughs> <laughs> back when John Cheese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... That is the the marshmallow test. Just because your four-year-old can't resist a second marshmallow for 15 minutes does not mean that they will turn out to be just, like, reckless and impulsive their whole life. And just because they do wait 15 minutes doesn't mean that they're going to be any better than the kid that ate that first marshmallow. And neither makes you a bad mother. (laughs) I'll keep telling myself that. (laughs) Have you ever attempted this on your children? Um... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> not not in like a standardized experiment, but yeah. in a way of you could have this now or we could get this later and and they're just like, yeah, no, I'm I'm going to eat this thing right now. Yeah, it's like, can I have a treat with supper? Well, we were planning to go out for ice cream after supper, but if you would prefer, you can have this muffin with your supper. I want the muffin. <laughs> like you don't want 99% of the time. And then 20 minutes later, are we going for ice cream? <laughs> no, you made that decision. <laughs> oh, oh the screaming. The screaming in the Newman household. <laughs> I've always, whenever this comes up, I always want to know, would baby Ashlyn have taken that marshmallow? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, w- I wish I knew. Have you guys ever watched any of the videos of kids being put through this test? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are hilarious. Yeah, I, I think I saw one on, was it on Vox or something? Like, some of the things that they will do to try and avoid actually eating the marshmallow, like, the, some yeah. of them will sit there and lick it. Yeah. <laughs> count if I'm just licking it. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, squish it, squish it, squish it. I've always been misinformed about this study. I thought it was three-year-olds would have no self-control and four-year-olds would. I thought there was a split there. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe and maybe it's, uh, I don't know if it was done by the same researcher or maybe it was um, done by somebody else, not so much as a replication, but trying different ages or something. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I thought that was the determination for figuring out that chimps, like juvenile chimps had the cognitive abilities of a three-year-old child because they couldn't resist. Oh, okay. But this may just have been something that I read, I don't know, in Reader's Digest when I was 10. Yeah. So I don't I, know. I don't, I don't know, you know. I'm sure that lots of studies probably use marshmallows because kids like them. Well, now that that misconception has been corrected, are you going to double down, Lauren? Ashlyn, why don't you tell us about the backfire effect? <laughs> in a post-truth society where facts don't matter and fake news rules the internet? Yes. That's what some researchers have been saying for about 10 years now. (laughs) So even before this current horrible U.S. administration. When you're trying to convince people of your point, does evidence matter? For years now, skeptics, vaccine advocates, and other science-minded folk have been working under the assumption that less is more due to something called the backfire effect. This is the notion that if you are presented with facts, like reasons behind the fact that vaccines work, that those facts will actually cause people who hold the opposite views to hold them more strongly and to believe that they are more correct than before. 
In essence, the backfire effect says that strong beliefs are fact-proof, because if you try to use facts to correct them, the person will only get more wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What a frustrating notion. Entire online skeptics toolkits have been built around this notion, like the Skeptical Science Debunking Handbook. As a side note, Skeptical Science has a really cool app that has all the common and a lot of the less common climate change denial talking points and the breakdown of why they're wrong, which is kind of cool to have in your pocket when that comes up. Yeah, Skeptical Science is a great website. Yeah, yeah. This handbook that they have is designed for any argument. It's not necessarily just for climate change, and and it's been a really cool tool that I've used before. The Oatmeal did a, a comic about the backfire effect that you may have seen since it went pretty viral not too long ago. Uh, where it asked readers to compare their feelings about being told that George Washington had had wooden teeth versus dentures made of animal teeth and ivory versus their feelings being told that he had worn dentures made from the teeth of slaves. The author cites several sources for each set of dentures and asks his readers if they felt that one fact was more easily believed than the other. He goes on to explain the backfire effect and that the more we want to disbelieve something, the easier it is to do so, which is also part of confirmation bias, which is something we talk about a lot on this show. So the good news is, the experiments that the Backfire Effect papers were based on have been extremely hard to recreate. That's why it's the subject of my segment for this show, as you've probably guessed. (laughs) The original experiments definitely fell into what I would consider my own zone of confirmation bias. One in particular gave people a news story to read about how Iraq was a place that terrorists could get weapons of mass destruction. They were then given a correction to this news story that the CIA had found no evidence of such weapons. For participants who were politically conservative, the correction doubled their belief that Iraq had WMDs instead of making them suspicious of that claim. Another study had myths and facts about vaccines on a poster, and half an hour after reading the poster, the two had kind of blended together in the participants' heads, leading them to tell researchers things that, yes, uh, the side effects of the flu vaccine were worse than getting the vaccine itself. And this was something that they knew because they had read it on the poster. (laughs) Not true, by the way. Right. (laughs) This, This was not a true fact. This was one of the myths that was on the poster, but they had read it on the poster, and so now it was true to them. Yeah. Get your vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally, reading results like that led many of us to be like, well, we're totally screwed when it comes to presenting evidence to change people's minds. The backfire effect, or boomerang effect as it's been known before, is nothing new to society. Back in the 1940s, it was apparently common for newspapers to have columns where they would refute bogus claims and rumors. Quote, newspaper fact-check columns known as rumor clinics sprang up in response to the fake news of the time. The claims say that a female munitions worker's head exploded when she went to a beauty parlor for a perm. (laughs) The rumor clinics spelled out these circulating falsehoods, then explained at length why they were phony, sucker bait, or food for propagese. (laughs) But experts soon determined that these refutations might be dangerous. By January of 1943, Mavens at America's Rumor Scotching Bureau, the Office of War Information, told the New York Times that debunkers could make a rumor worse by printing it and denying it in the wrong matter. So this has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. There were evidence from, uh, from the 40s, from the 50s, from the 60s, and then here's one from 1979, another quote from uh, the excellent Slate article on the backfire effect that we'll be linking. Another famous study, published in 1979, found a boomerang for environmental messages. Researchers in Arizona passed out flyers at a public swimming pool that features one of three messages. Don't litter, help keep your pool clean, or obey pool safety rules. 
The don't litter message seemed to backfire and make the garbage problem worse. Half the people who received that flyer tossed it on the ground, as compared with just one quarter of the people who'd received the other messages. <laughs> In any case, passing out flyers to prevent litter seems like a bad plan. <laughs> Over the last little while, though, more studies have been done, and the evidence from larger studies with better methodology is looking pretty damning. Quote, he and Porter decided to do a blowout survey of the topic. Instead of limiting their analysis to just a handful of issues like Iraqi WMDs, the safety of vaccines, or the science of global warming, they tried to find backfire effects across 52 contentious issues. Their study would provide corrections of false statements from Hillary Clinton on the effects of gun violence, for instance, and from Donald Trump on the rate of crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. They also increased the sample size from... Uh, the Nihan Riefler study, more than 30-fold, recruiting more than 10,000 subjects for their five experiments. Good lord. This must have been an online survey or something, right? I do not know. Ten- that is a lot of subjects. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of $5 bills you're handing out. <laughs> yeah. In spite of all this effort, and to the surprise of Wood and Porter, the massive replication effort came up with nothing. That's not to say that Wood and Porter's subjects were altogether free of motivated reasoning. The people in the study did give a bit more credence to corrections that fit with their beliefs. In those situations, the new information led them to update their positions more emphatically. But they never showed the effect that made the Nihan Riefler paper famous. People's views did not appear to boomerang against the facts. Among the topics tested in the new research, including whether Saddam had been hiding WMDs, not one produced a backfire. Quote, we were mugged by the evidence, says Wood. <laughs> Motivated reasoning and confirmation bias are still definitely big things to watch out for, but as far as these larger studies can tell, presenting facts to people almost never results in them being more wrong about a topic. It doesn't always result in them coming to view the fact as true, but something called parallel updating occurs, where people on either side of an issue creep closer to the truth in the middle. I thought that was a cool phrase. Mm. Parallel updating. Yeah. As Alexios Manzarlis, director of the International Fact-Checking Network of the Pointer Institute says... We are fact-resistant, but not fact-immune. <laughs> <laughs> that one's, that's a really positive kind of outcome for yeah. that, rather than like, oh, this thing we all believe to be true is not. It's like, well, that's the case, but in a good way. You yeah, know? yeah. It was We're a horrible getting, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was bad to think that like, oh, there's nothing you can do to yeah. change somebody's mind. And now to think, oh, that people will actually get closer to the truth. Like yeah. you said, I, I like that. That's so very hopeful. Keep sending those Snopes links to your... Yeah, like keep not like keep saying actually as opposed to oh it's not gonna make a difference. I have seen. I think some dudes could stand to well actually a little bit less. Yeah, Yeah. within reason and when it's appropriate. I've seen some stuff about um, if you present one or two pieces of evidence, it is more effective than presenting like forty. Right. Because if you present too much information, they just say like screw this and and won't look at it at all. I can see that. And then you would end up in that sort of authoritative complex where people would be like, I'm not listening to you. Like, what makes you think you have more authority over me or something mm-hmm. like that? And this information be, overload, guess. too. They'll just glaze over and... Yeah, don't send me to watch a three-hour YouTube video. <laughs> no. <laughs> Speaking of authority, Lauren, why don't you tell us all about Milgram's authority experiment? 1961 brought the world the Eichmann trial for war atrocities, and with it, one of the most chilling excuses for abdication of responsibility. I was only following orders. 
Far away from that Jerusalem courtroom, Yale University psychology professor Stanley Milgram set up a trial that he felt would definitively prove whether or not the average rational human could be capable of following orders through to similar ends. I'm going to throw in a content warning here. This segment discusses both bodily harm and dehumanization. If you feel these topics aren't for you at this time, feel free to skip ahead for a few minutes. So on its face, the Milgram experiment was simple. Ads went out offering $4 for one hour of participants' time, and that Yale required 500 men to help complete a scientific study of memory and learning. The study was not testing memory and learning, of course. It was testing a subject's ability to inflict pain. How did they go about this? The subject was brought into a waiting room where one other man, the first set of studies were done exclusively on men, so this other man was already sitting. Unbeknownst to the subject, this other man was a paid actor. The two would get to talking, and the actor would mention something about having a heart condition. The researcher, another actor, would enter and offer a container with two slips of paper, one that purportedly said learner, and one that said teacher. In reality, both said teacher. The actor would say that his said learner, and he would be led into a room in full view of the teacher, and strapped into restraints, have an electrode placed on his hand. The researcher would say something about the restraints being for his own protection. The teacher would be led to a different room, usually next door, where he was sat at a table in front of a machine with several buttons and an intercom. He now had no visual contact with the learner. The researcher would sit at another table and instruct the teacher that he was to read a series of word pairs to the learner in the other room. The learner would have to repeat back the pairs. If the learner got the answer wrong, the teacher was to administer an electric shock using the machine in front of him. Each subsequent mistake would increase the voltage. The first shock would be 15 volts, and the final shock would be 450 volts. If the teacher expressed any misgivings, the researcher was to give verbal prompts, which were, in order, please continue, the experiment requires that you continue, it is absolutely essential that you continue, you have no other choice, you must go on. The experiment was to end at one of two outcomes. Either the teacher refused to go on after receiving the prompts, or he had given the learner three 450-volt shocks. Now the teacher could quite clearly hear the learner's reaction to the shocks, which included screaming, crying, begging for mercy, banging on the wall, and reminders of his heart condition. As the shocks got higher, the learner then fell silent. After the experiment was complete, the teacher would be led out into the hallway where he would see the learner accepting his payment for the session and fleeing before the teacher could talk to him. What the teacher was not privy to was that the learner wasn't hooked up to the machine and that the machine didn't work, and all of the yells and screams and pleadings were pre-recorded. Prior to beginning this experiment, Milgram polled some 14 senior psychology students on how 100 hypothetical teachers would behave. They assumed that a very small amount, about 1.2%, would go to the max voltage. An informal poll of psychology professors gave a similar percentage. 40 practicing psychiatrists also came up with nearly identical numbers. According to Milgram's original experiment, 65%, that's 26 out of the 40 subjects, administered the final 450-volt shock. Now, each of them stopped the experiment at least once, and most were reassured by the researcher in the room to continue. Most of these subjects displayed signs of stress, such as sweating, trembling, seizures, or laughing fits. After the experiment, the teacher received a de-hoaxing session. According to Milgram, future iterations of the experiment produced similar results. The greatest variable seemed to be how close the researcher was positioned to the teacher. Stanley Milgram had proven that people really do follow orders. 
he elaborated two theories. The first is the theory of conformism, describing the fundamental relationship between the group of reference and the individual person. A subject who has neither ability nor expertise to make decisions, especially in a crisis, will leave decision-making to the group and its hierarchy. The group is the person's behavioral model. The second is the agentic state theory, per Milgram, the essence of obedience consists in the fact that a person comes to view themselves as the instrument for carrying out another person's wishes, and they therefore need no longer see themselves as responsible for their actions. Once this critical shift of viewpoint has occurred in this person, all of the essential features of obedience follow. And so people believed that more than half of the human population were so willing to please that they would go along with whatever they were told as long as it came from an authority figure. We were all, it seemed, no better than Nazis. But because this is an episode about debunked experiments, that wasn't where it lay. Yes, the results of the Milgram experiments passed into our shared knowledge. We all knew everyone was spineless, we all know that we would resist. But, as we have seen, methodology matters, especially an experiment with such large-scale consequences. For her 2013 book, Behind the Shock Machine, The Untold Story of the Notorious Milgram Psychology Experiments, Australian psychologist Gina Perry did a deep dive into the transcripts, interviews, and recording of the Milgram experiments. Though his papers had been donated to uh, Yale after his death, nobody had really gone through them. She was really the first person to go through these papers and recordings. Hmm. And she found flaws with both the methodology and the ethics. Oh, yes, yeah. The, the ethical <laughs> pretty, issues. Those are pretty glaring to yeah. start with. Oh, yeah. Go on. <laughs> Milgram ran 24 variations on his experiment. His first experiments, as I detailed before, with only 40 subjects. Hmm. And that gave us our magic 65% completion rate. Because he published that percentage, it's the number that he stuck with. And running all the way through, everyone said, the Milgram experiment said 65% of us will do this. Over half of the subsequent experiments had 60% of subjects disobeying and refusing to continue. The original researcher, a man named John Williams, tended to go off script a lot. Yeah. Mm. Instead of the rote repetition of those four phrases, he improvised to keep the teacher going, with Milgram's approval. Hmm. Yeah. He would leave the lab to check on the learner, and then assure the teacher that he was all right, and to keep going. He would command some subjects up to 25 times to keep shocking the learner. He would not allow some to leave the room to check on the other participant, and he would not allow them to swap places when they offered. Instead of being rote and repeatable, Williams appeared to tailor his approach to each teacher mm -hmm. in ways that would make them capitulate. Perry states that the slavish obedience to authority we have come to associate with Milgram's experiments comes to sound much more like bullying and coercion when you listen to these recordings. Yeah. Let's look back at those dehoaxing sessions. When you hear that phrase in re regards to the Milgram experiments, what do you think that they entail? Uh, I, I would assume it would involve... Um telling the person that the other participant was in fact a confederate, that they did not have a heart condition, that no shocking occurred, uh, that uh, the, the, the teacher was actually the subject, and this is what we were trying to determine. Everybody in agreement? Yeah, that sounds reasonable. Like, <laughs> like, that, that's the, not the, what they did, but that sounds like yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the fact that you asked the question leads me to think that that's not what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Set me up here, Jim. Yeah. 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 The sessions were mostly used, if at all, to calm down the participants, and a good 75% of participants left without a debrief at all. They, said they were just too upset to continue. 
Some were later sent letters explaining the experiment, and some weren't. It was a crapshoot. So here we, de- here we delve into a phenomenon called inflicted insight. It occurs when the subject is given insight into their flaws through their participation in an experiment, often unexpectedly causing emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Having just had it proved to themselves that they were horrible monsters no better than the Nazis, some participants experienced prolonged anxiety. Has everybody seen the movie or read the book, The Neverending Story? I've seen the movie, yeah. yes, many times. Okay. I made I read the book to Ashlyn, and she hated it. But there's the one scene with the Oracle, the Southern Oracle, where he you have to face your fears and you have to face yourself, and in the book you have to walk through this mirror image of yourself, and it shows you the worst part of yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what the inflicted insight... That's what I was picturing, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, due to inflicted insight and the ethical quandaries of either actually shocking people or convincing people that they are shocking people, no direct replication has been completed. There have been other attempts, but people have... Uh, have done computer models where the subjects were, they were just shocking a computer. They were just as reluctant. Mm -hmm. And there have been other ones where they shocked a puppy real in real time, right there in the room. Mm -hmm. And because some of Milgram's uh, findings had said that if people were to go to 150 volts, they would also, they would be more likely to go to 450. Some experiments have gone just to 150, and then assumed that people would continue from there. But there's been no pure replication of this. So uh, listeners who've been uh, listening to the podcast for a long time might remember that several years ago, I was actually involved in a a bit of research based on the Milgram experiments on, I I think it was episode 48, uh, where we talked about robots. Back when the show had a, a bit of a different format, uh, we uh, spoke with Derek Cormier, who was a uh, researcher at the Human Robotic Interaction Lab, uh, where I also volunteered uh, some of my time. He was the lead author on on a paper that uh, that used uh, a setup like Milgram's experiment um, to investigate how willing uh, humans would be to cede their authority to robots. And we were well aware of the ethical uh, quandaries involved <laughs> in the, um, uh, I'm, I think, second or third author on that paper. I consulted on it a little bit, but my primary r- role was as uh, pretending to be the experimenter, right? Uh, I, was, uh, I was involved in the control case. So what we had participants do is do, instead of shocking somebody, which you know, we don't want to convince people that they're monsters. We made them do a task that they obviously really would not want to do, but wouldn't feel bad about doing. Basically, these amounted to boring, menial tasks on a computer, like manually renaming tens of thousands of files, uh, or uh, or playing uh, games where you'd have to spot something flashing on the screen and click a button in, in response and like that. Uh, very boring things that, uh, that they had to continue doing for long periods of time. Uh, and uh, in the control case, a, uh, a researcher, an authority figure, uh, me, in a lab coat, would instruct the participants when they, you know, after 10 or 15, 20 minutes, got bored, uh, would instruct them that they had to continue. They'd, they'd previously been told they could leave at any time. 
uh, we would instruct them to continue using, uh, I believe it was four very specific prompts mm -hmm. that I would deliver in the same tone of voice, uh, word for word, identical. Again, we're aware of the uh, <laughs> failings with the Milgram experiment and uh, try to convince them to stay. And some of them stayed and some of them left. And then in that was the control condition. And then in the experimental condition, uh, the same thing happened, but instead of me sitting there, it was a robot uh, that they were told was autonomous, um, uh, but was in fact being controlled directly by Derek. The, the the results were that um, I was slightly more authoritative than a one-and-a-half-foot robot. <laughs> slightly. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll link to that paper in the in the show notes, and uh, and you can go back and listen to our interview with Derek uh, if, if you want to subject yourself to an episode of the podcast from a long time ago, but it was interesting. It was pre-me, so I didn't listen. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I... Oh, sure. No, it is. I'm gonna... Our podcast is more interesting now that you're on it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although correlation does not, not equal causation. causation. <laughs> so we look, when we look back at the Milgram, um, we had some people who were horribly conflicted with what they had done, but we also had a subset of the people who were proud of what they had done. That they were proud that they had shocked this person up to 450 volts because it was for science and the common good. And the researcher had assured them that no lasting harm would come to the learner. So they were like, nothing's going to be wrong, and they wanted to know what, what would happen, so I'm just going to keep shocking him. So Perry, when she was going through the papers, found that a good many of the experiment subjects knew the study was a hoax and went along with it anyway. They had figured out that they, weren't, that they were the ones being tested and not the uh. testers. And that was actually a question that we asked uh, as part of our experiment. What do you think we were actually trying to test um, as part of the debrief and uh, whether they thought the robot was actually autonomous and like that? Yeah, because a first autonomous robot, they would bring that in for, this is what it would be doing. Well, uh, yeah, and that was, it was several years ago back when people were not using Siri all the time and, and yeah. like that too. Unpublished papers that Perry discovered at Yale showed that suspicion was alive and well among many of Milgram's subjects. They had told Milgram later what had made them suspicious, and he had filed these interviews away, or they had sent him letters. Some commented on how the learner's cries seemed to be coming from a speaker in the corner of the room, suggesting that it was a tape recording. Put the speaker in the other room! Mm -hmm. Ugh. Amateurs! <laughs> and others had noticed that when the learner had been giving the check at the end of the session, it looked really dog-eared and battered, like he'd been given the same check hundreds of times. <laughs> <laughs> More people said the experimenter's lack of concern for the learner and failure to respond to the learner's complaints suggested there was nothing to worry about. Because if there was actually something to worry about, he would be concerned, right? Mm -hmm. It's basic human nature. Some subjects described that they had press switches of lower voltage Still, the learner had said, like, had been crying that they were, oh, it's too much, it's too much to bear. And they were still pushing down at the, the 150 or the, the 15 volts. So this skepticism of the subjects, whose belief in the experiment setup is pivotal to the validity of the experiment, has consistently been downplayed in discussions of the relevance and meaning of the results since the test came out in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they're that they're monsters. If they if they're just like this is just a game. I want mm -hmm. my four bucks. Yeah, yeah. So Milgram bullied people, 
He left some in the dark, and he downplayed the fact that others could see through his experiment. But his results must have had some insight into human nature, right? It was all for the greater good of science? His studies say that inside each of us, under the ordinary trappings, there's a monster waiting to get out. Eichmann's banality of evil, as described by journalist Hannah Endrit. Milgram himself was determined to figure out how ordinary people could become Nazis, and that's what he claimed. A common psychological process is centrally involved in both his laboratory experiments and in Nazi Germany. However, Milgram's experiments differ from the doctrine of the Nazis in a few key ways. One, the subjects of Milgram experiments were assured in advance that no permanent physical damage would result from their actions. However, the Holocaust perpetrators were fully aware their hands-on killing and maiming of the victims. The laboratory subjects themselves did not know their victims and were not motivated by racism or other biases. On the other hand, the Holocaust perpetrators displayed an intense devaluation of the victims through a lifetime of personal development. Those serving punishment at the lab, so Milgram's participants, were not sadists nor hate mongers and often exhibited great anguish and conflict in the experiment, unlike the designers and executors of the final solution who had a very clear goal on their hands, which was set beforehand. The experiment lasted for an hour, with no time for the subjects to contemplate the implications of their behavior. Meanwhile, the Holocaust lasted for several years, with ample time for a moral assessment of all individuals and organizations involved. That's a very good point. Yeah. In the opinion of Thomas Blass, the author of a scholarly study on the experiment, The Man Who Shocked the World, <laughs> so many puns in this, so many puns. So good. Oh, no, it's not, you guys. You're wrong. So is Milgram. <laughs> so Thomas Blass said the historical evidence pertaining to actions of the Holocaust perpetrators speaks louder than words. And Blass says, My own view is that Milgram's approach does not provide a fully adequate explanation of the Holocaust. While it may account for the dutiful destructiveness of the dispassionate bureaucrat who may have shipped Jews to Auschwitz with the same degree of routinization as potatoes to Bremerhaven, it falls short where one tries to apply it to a more zealous, inventive, and hate-driven atrocities that also characterize the Holocaust. Well, I wish I could segue to something a little on the lighter side, but... <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna stick with the Nazi theme for a moment. Should have ended with marshmallows, Jim. Yeah. Marshmallows. Yeah. <laughs> a hopeful study, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, we're going good study, tasty study, Nazis. The Stanford Prison Experiment is one of the most infamous experiments in social psychology. From August 14th through 20th, 1971, Professor Philip Zimbardo acted as the superintendent of a prison in the basement of Stanford University, populated by volunteer students serving as inmates and guards in an effort to investigate the psychological effects of authority. Zimbardo found that the students rapidly adapted to their roles, with the guards devising increasingly authoritarian rules and increasingly elaborate punishments for the prisoners, culminating in such severe psychological abuse that one prisoner had a complete mental breakdown and had to be released early. The results of the experiment have been used to explain the behavior of guards in Nazi Germany and guards at Abu Ghraib arguing that human behavior is primarily the product of circumstance. Power corrupts, and put in the right situation, anyone could commit atrocities. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Despite being a fixture of most introductory psychology textbooks, 
The experiment has long been criticized by psychologists for its lack of concrete data and methodological rigor, but it's probably most famous for its casual disregard of basic research ethics. <laughs> the study design allowed guards to inflict whatever rules and punishments they saw fit on prisoners in order to control their behavior. To this end, prisoners were subjected to long periods of forced exercise. Their mattresses were removed, forcing them to sleep on the concrete floor, or they were forced to strip and sleep naked. Some prisoners were only allowed to relieve themselves using a bucket placed in their cell, which the guards would not allow the prisoners to empty. Most damningly, subjects were forbidden from leaving the experiment. In the paper, Zimbardo claimed that subjects simply needed to say, I quit the experiment, and they would be released. But transcripts show that this was a lie, and that Zimbardo had told the participants, There are only two conditions under which you can leave, medical help or psychiatric. This was before studies on human participants were subject to mandatory ethical review. In fact, both the Stanford experiment and the Yale-Milgram experiment that we talked about today were instrumental in the formation of modern institutional review boards. Oh yeah. Though it was intended to run two weeks, the experiment was terminated after only six days, when psychology graduate student Christina Maslick, who also happened to be Professor Zimbardo's girlfriend, that's a thing that still happens pretty because often. Ethics. <laughs> because ethics. Uh, when uh, graduate student Christina Maslick uh, objected to the treatment of the prisoners. But beyond the ethical violations involved in the experiment, its methods and findings have been repeatedly called into question. First of all, it was tiny. There were only 18 experimental subjects, nine guards and nine inmates. Uh, if I recall correctly. Uh, reporting on the study often focuses on the one prisoner who suffered, as Zimbardo put it, a complete mental breakdown. The student had been locked in a closet wearing only a thin smock and had been kicking at the door, screaming, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside. Don't you know? I want to get out. This is all fucked up inside. I can't stand another night. I just can't take it anymore. That prisoner, Douglas Corpy, was indeed released before the experiment was terminated, but in subsequent interviews, he has insisted that he was just play-acting, he was just playing along. In a recent interview with Ben Blum, which I'll link to in the show notes, Corpy claims that the only actual stress he suffered was on account of the guards confiscating his textbooks, preventing him from studying for an upcoming exam, <laughs> and that he eventually faked a breakdown just so that he could get back to studying. Quoting from the article, Zimbardo's standard narrative of the Stanford prison experiment offers the prisoners' emotional responses as proof of how powerfully affected they were by the guards' mistreatment. The shock of real imprisonment provides a simpler and less groundbreaking explanation. It may have also had legal implications, should prisoners have thought to pursue them. Corpy told me that the greatest regret of his life was failing to sue Zimbardo. So what Blum is arguing here is that it wasn't the, the mistreatment that caused the emotional responses. It was the fact that they were not expecting to actually be trapped mm. and that they expected to be able to leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Zimbardo also claimed that all the rules and punishments employed in the experiment were devised by the guards, but this, it turns out, was also a lie. <laughs> Zimbardo had hired a San Quentin parolee named Carlo Prescott to consult on the experimental design. Prescott provided the experimenters with a list of techniques used to abuse and control prisoners at San Quentin, taken from his time behind bars, and guards were coached on the use of these techniques. This 
provides further evidence that these guards were not simply abusing their authority, as Zimbardo frames it, but instead were just following a script. Like Corpy, they were merely playing their roles. So in addition to ethical concerns, a lack of any quantifiable data, a tiny sample size, and multiple misstatements of fact in the study itself, the authenticity of the behavior of both the guards and the prisoners has been called into question. When two British psychologists attempted to replicate Zimbardo's findings in 2001, ensuring that the guards were not coached, and that ethical guidelines were put in place to allow the prisoners to leave if they felt unsafe, they were unable to reproduce Zimbardo's findings, discovering instead that contrary to Zimbardo's findings where prisoners turned on each other, the prisoners worked together and the guards became increasingly docile. One of the psychologists involved claims that Zimbardo had privately written to journal editors in an attempt to prevent this failed replication from being published. Whoa. And when it was eventually accepted for publication, it was accompanied by a note from Zimbardo in which he wrote, quote, I believe this alleged social psychology field study is fraudulent and does not merit acceptance by the social psychological community in Britain, the United States, or anywhere except in media psychology. The stones on that man. <laughs> yeah, uh, there will be a callback to this later when I uh, uh, talk about Bem. I think this particular psychologist might be guilty of projection. <laughs> <laughs> The Stanford Prison Experiment can't be replicated not only because it was grossly unethical by today's standards, but also because it was a fraud. I should note that, problems with the study notwithstanding, I actually do believe that we are all products of circumstance, but not simply as Zimbardo would contend our immediate circumstance. It's a lot more complicated than that. The reasons that I think so are uh, beyond the scope of this segment and have nothing to do with Zimbardo's experiments. But if you want to know more, check out episode 94, in which I try to convince the panel that free will is a lie. <laughs> So, that was uh, quite a few studies that we've talked through today. How are we feeling about the state of uh, psychology research? No, I'm just thinking about free will again. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, so, what does all this mean for the field of psychology, do you think? Psychology is garbage. No. Toss it all <laughs> Whatever, Hubbard. Make somebody replicate it before you get to publish the first one. Let's ah, try that. that that's yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Or stop giving fanfare to you know stop going on a media tour every time you you publish something. Publish everything that's in your filing cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you do the experiment, you must publish trial stop registries, doing, yeah. publication of replications, and yeah. stop doing all of your experiments on college students. <laughs> and that's yeah. yes, that's a huge thing. I mean, that was. Part of but they're the already there. <laughs> they're already there, but like I had to do X many hours of experiments in order to pass my course. It yeah. didn't matter what grade I got. If I didn't show up for that many, for however many credits, I couldn't get my grade and in if that you class. So, okay, great. Well, I'm glad I know what a whole bunch of like mostly white Manitobans between the ages of 18 and 20 are like in these situations, but what do other people do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> And if you're looking for people who are not likely to see through your experiment, maybe psychology students are uh, n n not, not your target. I don't your know. Target. First years are pretty dumb and drunk, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I was a first year. I'm not saying I was any different than them. <laughs> Longtime listeners may recall that we did an episode on parapsychology a few years ago, and I discussed the controversial, shall we say, research of Daryl Bem, whose Feeling the Future study contended that people could see into the future just a little bit, especially when pornography was involved. <laughs> I'm not going to rehash all the problems with that study here. Give episode 106 a listen if you're interested. It was, uh, it was a fun time. Uh, but suffice it to say, Bem's findings did not survive replication. Although Bem did personally, uh, like Zimbardo, attempt to block the publication of at least one negative trial. Uh, at the time of its publication, many psychologists pointed out that BEM's research did meet the evidentiary standards of the field, and that it would be inappropriate to block its publication just because, you know, humans can't actually see into the future. How would that work? That's obviously not what happened. Jesus Christ. Why are we publishing this? Uh, and instead, they should just publish it because, you know, they, that's, that's the way you do it. Um, but many critics argued in turn that the publication of Feeling the Future is itself evidence that the standards of evidence in experimental psychology are woefully insufficient. A 2011 article published in Review of General Psychology actually uses BEM's research as a case study, suggesting that experimental psychology is systematically biased toward interpretations of data that favor the theories of the experimenter, making it clear that the standard experimental protocols used in the field of psychology need to be overhauled. But some prominent researchers, like Princeton University psychologist Susan Fisk, defend the current paradigm, calling those who criticize existing research and statistical methods methodological terrorists, and insisting that any criticisms of their colleagues should be expressed only in private. Oh, God. Critics, yeah, that's how things get changed. Yeah. Uh, critics of the status quo point out that this sort of institutional deference allows shoddy science to continue to flourish, with Columbia University statistician Andrew Gelman pointing out that Fisk herself has a record of refusing to retract publications <laughs> when major errors are brought to her attention, yeah. and that her tenure as editor of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences was marked by many high-profile papers that did not hold up to statistical scrutiny. So I don't know what the future holds for the science of psychology, but the status quo is clearly untenable, and it seems like the field has to change in some fundamental ways. I hope that influential people like Susan Fisk start taking these problems seriously. The reproducibility project from the Center for Open Science was a huge step in the right direction, and a sign that some prominent researchers in the field are taking this problem seriously. The website Retraction Watch is also an excellent resource for tracking papers and authors that don't hold up to scrutiny. So I'll link that in the show notes too. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? So I thought that we could do an episode on various kinds of personality testing. So it's something that we have talked about for a while, ever since Lauren's work subjected her to a particularly ridiculous version. <laughs> it was uh, a hoot! So uh, maybe we will find a couple of tests to take over the next month and report back on our findings. Sounds like fun! Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. It's good to be back. Yay. <laughs> good night. Good night. Cheers. Bye. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Ashlyn Noble and Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. 
Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. Robots, 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 numbers, numbers. Yay! I like how he stayed in radio voice for that. I don't have a radio voice. (laughs) Don't break character, Daniel (laughs) Day-Lewis. Whose feeling the future study contended that people could see into the future just a little bit, especially when pornography was involved. (laughs) I'm not going to rehash all the problems with that study here. Uh, Is it because porn is just super predictable? <laughs> Maybe the porn you watch. Yeah, Lauren's into the into the weird stuff. We do the weird stuff. <laughs> I'm not shaming anybody. Uh, give episode one of sex uh, one of sex. <laughs> I don't think you need to cut that. Just leave that in. That's good. <laughs> Our next episode will be about Freud. <laughs> Awesome. We'll just end there. <laughs> yeah. Just leave the Whatever else you had to say can't no. be topped. Next month on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I do want to talk about Freud actually. Cut that sentence together to make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm.